Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I am joined with Ian Clary. We are jumping back into John Calvin's Institutes, and we're in book three, and I believe we're looking at sec uh, sections 12 to, or chapters 12 to 14 today. So it ends uh, something like a page 788 or so in our in the book that we're using. It's an interesting section on justification and various other things. So I know that you wanted to start by reading a section in, was it book three in chapter 12 and then in section four. So let's start there, Ian, and then we can talk through it. Yeah, I mean, this this section here on page 758 and in the beginning of 59, where, you know, all of that number four, I mean, it was just when I read it, I literally wrote my margins. The only thing I wrote in the margins was, wow, like, it was just like, I just really needed it. And uh, so what, he, what he's talking about in this, this kind of larger section that we're going to be dealing with and what he's been talking about before is just the question of like our justification, our status in Christ, the role of merit and works. Uh, the need for humility as we approach God and all these kinds of things. And, um, and so here he's, he, there's just, there's something, there's something so poetic and so pastoral and so encouraging about this section. I just want to take a moment and kind of and read it. So if, if you're reading along with us, pull out, if you've got your battles, Lewis translation of the Institutes 758, just sit back and listen to this. Uh, so Calvin tells us, he says, this is the truth. Awakened consciences, when they have to do with God's judgment, recognize this as the only safe haven in which they can securely breathe. For if the stars, which seem so very bright at night, lose their brilliance in the sight of the sun, what do we think will happen even to the rarest innocence of man when it is compared with God's purity? For it will be a very severe test which will penetrate to the most hidden thoughts of the heart. And as Paul says, he will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and will uncover the hidden purposes of the heart. This will compel the lurking and lagging conscience to utter all things that have now even been forgotten. Our accuser, the devil, mindful of all the transgressions that he has impelled us to perpetrate, will press us. Outward parade of good works, which alone we now esteem, will be, be of no benefit there. Purity of will alone will be demanded of us. And therefore, hypocrisy shall fall down confounded, even as it now vaunts itself with drunken boldness. This applies not only to that hypocrisy by which a man, knowing himself guilty before God, strives to show himself off among men, but also to that by which every man deceives himself before God, prone as we are to pamper and flatter ourselves. They who do not direct their attention to such a spectacle can indeed for the moment pleasantly and peacefully construct a righteousness for themselves, but one that will soon in God's judgment be shaken from them, just as great riches heaped up in a dream vanish upon waking. But they who seriously, and as in God's sight, will seek after the true rule of righteousness will certainly find that all human works, if judged according to their own worth, are nothing but filth and defilement. And what is commonly reckoned righteousness is before God sheer iniquity. What is adjudged uprightness, pollution. What is accounted glory, ignominy. And so he's in this whole argument, he's saying that like, what do we need? We need Christ. We need his righteousness. Yes, we have works. And as we'll talk about, I'm sure, uh, you know, the works even of unbelievers are, are, are genuinely good works. They're virtuous to a certain degree. Um, but all of this is all nothing if we don't actually have the righteousness of Christ by which we stand before God. And I don't know, man, I just found it like a really powerful statement. You know, it's interesting. One of the, I guess, the thought that went through my mind is the phenomenon today of a kind of a, a Christian virtue signaling where you, <laughs> um, 
what he talks about therefore hypocrisy will fall down confounded even as it now vaunts itself with drunken boldness sometimes it's really easy to talk the talk on on the internet yeah whereas in person <laughs> you're, you're usually chastened because there's relationships and eyeballs and and physical voices around you and you, you become quieter but this idea of hypocrisy vaunting and drunken boldness is i think a danger for all of us it's very easy to say something strongly that sounds righteous and good and bold on the internet yeah we would never say in in person and there there's that probably should tell us something about our hearts at least for mine yeah. it probably tells me that um what i say online i feel like i can do because i'm not constrained by relationships and what yeah. And, and there's something to that. I think there's a reason that we're social creatures because our world well, yeah, is in fact harmony. We are doing this when we're in relation, right? It's just the thing is we're in relation with God who's actually watching and sees into us. You know, it's like, yeah, we can, we can virtue signal. We can like do all these great things before man and mm -hmm. we can puff ourselves up not before God, none of this, even the good works, like the great things that we do, they ultimately mean nothing if they're not done in the right frame. Um, which is with this humility and light of our justification and light of like, you know, as he talks about before this imputation of Christ's righteousness and union with Christ and all that kind of stuff. And mm. it's just like, man, it's just so humbling. You know, I'm, you know, all this stuff that's been going on lately with all the politics and, and uh, COVID lockdowns and everything. It's like, I, you know, I could feel my back getting up at times and I'm, I want to show people, Oh, I know this, you know, and why don't you believe that? And whew, it's a good rebuke, you know? I think so. And, and the other thing, it's kind of what you're saying is that this language sometimes can, can draw you to despair because we're so bad. But I think what Calvin is doing is saying even the most purest, rarest, innocent person is nothing before the illuminating light of God. And yeah. therefore you have a safe, don't worry. Like don't worry in this sense, you have a safe Haven. If yeah. you were in Christ, his righteousness is yours. His safety is yours. His imputation is yours. All these kinds of things are sort of in the background to this and uh, i think that's helpful because i think a lot of times we view we can view this as kind of crushing like and make ourselves make ourselves feel bad but actually i think he's saying this so we don't rely upon ourselves but rely entirely on christ which is maybe obvious that i say it out loud but i think it's it maybe worth repeating the pastoral well, it, it is obvious on one sense but i mean because this is part of this whole bigger argument that he's making here right in terms of um you know, like in our kind of classical Calvinist circles, it's like everything you do is awful. We're wicked. We're horrible people. You know, I mean, I can I remember sitting under preaching like that day, in, like you know, Sunday in, Sunday out kind of thing, and and you come away just like feeling battered. And it's like Calvin balances it out, um, as we can talk about, you know, in terms of like we have to be brought low, but. Um, as, he, as he says, as you noted, this, 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 there is this safe haven and, and all that, that Christ means for us. And how do we understand, like, what is our true good work and our virtue and our merit? And it actually really is, it's acceptable to God, not on its own accord, not because we're doing it, but because it's done in Christ, right? Well, he's shortly going to distinguish the idea of true virtue from the images of virtue. Before we get there, let me just read couple sentences from page 753 we talked about but i think it's really important it kind of undergirds a lot of what he's talking about and that's basically yeah. this our union with christ is the main thing from which all the benefits follow yeah so he says um in section 23 page 753 of chapter 11 uh, uh the beginning of the second uh paragraph you see that our righteousness is not in us but in christ 
that we possess it only because we are partakers in Christ. Indeed, with him, we possess all its riches. And this does not contradict what he teaches elsewhere, that sin has been condemned for sin in Christ's flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. The only fulfillment he alludes to is that which we obtain through imputation. For in such a way does the Lord Christ share his righteousness with us that, in some wonderful manner, he pours into us enough of his power to meet the judgment of God. Meaning, because we're united to Christ, we are justified. And he meets whatever uh, condemnation is ready against you with enough grace, with enough power, with enough to save you from it. That's safe haven. And the language of poor, I'm not sure if he directly alludes to it, but he's kind of used his language to talk about how the Holy Spirit is poured out from Christ's body in earlier passages. So I, I kind of wonder if that's in his mind, but he obviously doesn't say it. So I can't confirm that. Uh, but yeah. I... But I, I am very suspicious. So that's our that's our, our anchor, our safety. Um, that, that, and that's like that's what he's going to say right there on on seven fifty four. Then under under chapter twelve, number one, right? He's he's going to go into this like you know we 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 don't need to be concerned per se about the the justice that comes by way of a human court. What we really need to be concerned with is what he describes here is this heavenly tribunal right? Like, what does God think? And what is he going to think about us? He's only, the only way we're going to get good thoughts from God is if we actually are in Christ, partaking of him, receiving that righteousness by imputation. Um, and it's no wonder he calls it a safe haven. <laughs> well, I mean, what you just said connected a dot for me. If we're going to say all of our righteousness is basically nothing compared to God's purity, well, that is entirely going to browbeat us unless we know that the judgment of God has been met by the power of Christ and we're in him. Meaning all of these condemnations, while true, are not meant to make us feel bad, but solely to draw us entirely to Christ and not upon our own righteousness. We we can't do it. It's meant to show us that we can't so that we rely entirely upon our safe haven, which we have by faith as a guarantee. It's not, you know, a possibility, but it's necessarily ours by faith. Yeah. Um, Yeah, meant to bring us low it's meant to give us uh, a real you know state of, of humility you know well, and th- well you just that's a really important point actually i want to make that so humility sometimes we think is the feeling of really bad about ourselves but what you no. just said it's objectively humility objectively our works cannot justify us and cannot save us from the condemnation objectively christ can and therefore humility is an objective <laughs> placing yourself under rather than, I think, this sort of subjective, psychological browbeating of self. Yeah. And I think we confuse those categories given, um, well, I don't know if you read Carl Truman's new book, but we've, you kind of chronicled. I'm, I'm, I'm about three quarters through. Okay. He just talks about how in the last 500 years, we've really changed and become super introspective. Yeah. And maybe we should be a little bit different about how we think about ourselves. And I think Calvin here is really doing talking about true humility. And we sometimes confuse that with simply feeling bad. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting here because uh, I have to flip to it to find where he, where he talks about um, where he, he, he there's a part here where he leans heavily on uh, on Bernard of Clairvaux. Hmm. And it was just it was been interesting to read that again uh, in light of uh, a course that I'm teaching here at Colorado Christian University, um, where we were just reading through me and my students through some of the sermons that Bernard did on the Song of Songs. Page seven sixty seven. Seven sixty seven. And so, uh, you know, he, uh, in Bernard, Bernard talks about like this idea of like the bride wanting, uh, requesting the kiss of the groom's mouth. And then Bernard gets into these three levels of kissing, 
Um, you can't go straight to the kiss of the mouth with the, with the bridegroom because first you have to kiss the feet because that's a sign of our humility. Our, we have nothing. We contribute nothing. So we have to kiss the feet of the groom first. Then we kiss the hands because he's given us repentance and forgiveness. And that's the means by where we receive and then where we are strengthened. And then when we inter- in, come into a final eschatological union with God, that's when we kiss the, the mouth of the, of the groom in our, in our, in our, the full consummation. Uh, and, and it's like, you know, Calvin loves Bernard. We see that there in, the, in that, uh, that you mentioned, but like it, even what he's saying here just harkens back to some of that kind of like humility, the reception of God's forgiveness in Christ. And then this, the strengthening of our good works. Like he's going to talk later about why the, the, the medieval Catholic view or the scholastic view of works of supererogation is not helpful. Um, you know, you, we have a, we have duty, we have things we have to do, but our works are, whether they're, even if they're beyond duty are not going to save us. Um, and, uh, because, because the one who gives us the, the ability to do those works is the one who's actually had to save us in the first place. Well, I just, after he quotes Bernard, he says this, let us conclude briefly as follows. Scripture shows us that God's promises are not established unless they are grasped with full assurance of conscience. Wherever there is doubt or uncertainty, it pronounces them void. I think, I think what he's trying to get at is like we, we do have full assurance of conscience yeah. because of Christ. Um, yeah. Or at least we can have it. At least we can have it, yeah. Uh, there's one No, I wanted to jump before we kind of moved on to the works of super irrigation, which sounds amazingly fun. Yeah. Uh, his discussion on virtue, because yeah. you, you already read in the quote that he says our righteousness are, are basically filthy compared to God's pure light is the idea. But yet he's, he's not like totally um, agnostic that someone can't be kind to someone on the street or there can't be a good governor or a good doctor or a good teacher. He's not saying that's impossible in, in the way that we talk about it. So he says on page um, 769 in, in section two, to begin with, I do not deny that all the notable endowments that manifest themselves among unbelievers are gifts of God. I guess we would call this common grace today. But we would say there's something noble or good that we can see in someone else. Uh, a kindness to a stranger, uh, a good teacher, a good doctor, all these kinds of things. Well, we don't say, as Calvin will, will explain, these are pure, righteous, perfect things because they're not doing it for God's sake. They're doing it for whatever their sake. But we can't just call that pure evil, right? There has to be a category for what that is. And says, it goes on to say at the very bottom, therefore, the Lord has not only engraved such a distinction between honorable and wicked deeds in the minds of the individual of individual men, but also confirms it also by the dispensation of his providence, meaning there can be honorable deeds that we can recognize in the world by God's providence. He continues, for we see that he bestows many blessings of the present life upon those who cultivate virtue among men. Not because that outward image of virtue deserves the least benefit of him, but it pleases him so to prove how much he esteems true righteousness when he does not allow even external and feigned righteousness to go without a temporal reward. Right. Hence, so this would be like natural law kind of idea. Hence, there follows what we just now acknowledged that all these virtues, or rather images of virtues, are gifts of God, since nothing is in any way praiseworthy that does not come from him. Now, uh, let the, the finish the section, let me get to the next part and then we, we should discuss it. The next part is really helpful yeah. because he explains well, what's an image of virtue that's praiseworthy and somehow honorable, but yet 
you know, still not quote unquote good or just, how do you, what does that even mean? Yeah. Well, it, it includes what, what is the end? What is the goal? What's the purpose behind them? So he says in section three on page 770, um, uh, starting with the third sentence from the bottom, it says in short, in short, when we remember the constant end and end is technical as, as end and telos yeah. end of that, which is right, namely to serve God, whatever strives to another end or purpose already deservedly, deservedly loses the name right. And right here is like just. Therefore, because they do not look to the goal that God's wisdom prescribes what they do, though it seems good in the doing, yet by its perverse intention is sin. So intention and goal. He therefore concludes that all uh, fabricuses, Scipios and Kados, Kados, I guess, in their excellent deeds have sinned in that since they lack the light of faith, they did not apply their deeds to the end to which they ought to have applied them. Therefore, True righteousness was not in them because duties are weighed not by deeds, but by ends. Meaning, okay, there's an image of virtue. It is praiseworthy. It is noble. It is a gift of God. It's part of his providence. But we distinguish. (laughs) The end is uh, whatever, social good. We can recognize that and realize that in God's common grace, that's good. But it's not a true just act. It's not a true right act. Because that is only done when God and his glory or whatever is the end for which we act. And therefore there's a distinction between natural and regenerate men, regenerate men and women can do true good because we are serving God truly. But that doesn't mean that we can't recognize a skilled doctor or a kind act. Okay. That was a lot of words. He's illustrating, right? He starts out by giving us two types of emperors, you know, Titus and Trajan. Uh, And then you've got like the Caligula's, the Nero's and the Domitian's, the good and the bad. Yeah. And the good are, are actually good, right? In terms of, of these virtues. And he says they're gifts from God. Like God is us, actually right. the one who enables the pagan to actually have a virtue. Um, and this is helpful too, because that means then that we can actually learn from them, right? Like it's why you can make an, an, you know, an appeal to virtue ethics that come from the classical period. Uh, you can read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics and derive all kinds of benefits. You can read Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life or listen to Jocko Willing podcasts and, and get real benefit from God through them. Um, and they will help us as we are cultivating Christian virtue because we will orient them then towards that proper end, even though it's coming from an unbeliever. And man, that's so freeing, I think. That is freeing. And just to maybe illustrate it to help, because I'm sure other people feel this way. I, I remember living in a time where I was, I was like, I basically can't believe anything unless I find a particular Bible verse. Well, that really just made me hyper skeptical of everything. Yeah. But I mean, the same God who created everything also gave us the Bible. So everything yeah. is also from God. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can know about the Trinity or salvation, all those kinds of things. But if someone says, I studied a tree and a tree grows at a steady pace, I can trust them because yeah. they've observed and they have faculties. <laughs> if a teacher gives me a wise, uh, gives me wise insight into life, that maybe I should take this job or that other job, I can say it's a good thing. And I can recognize uh, God's good gift of providence to give us more honorable deeds in and through this recommendation. You mentioned podcast and natural law of virtue, or at least virtue, virtue ethics. Anyways, again, that is so freeing to me because while the Bible is my final authority that conforms all the other things, I'm able to trust a doctor. (laughs) I can trust someone who has experience in life about wisdom. 
Well, I'm, I'm able to trust a, a pagan philosopher or an ethicist or something, right? Like, I have to be careful, obviously. We got, we got to know who we're, who we're reading and what we're dealing with. We don't want to just take it wholesale. Right. Um, but we can, we can actually read these things uh, and, and, and derive true benefit from them. But he's going to go into all this, like, but none of this is, again, back to this kind of issue of justification and Christ's righteousness and what is regeneration and all that stuff. It's like, even that is not going to get us any kind of acceptance yeah. before God, right? Yeah. Even, even when we continue as believers in our good works and take appreciating virtue, the ground of our acceptance, he's going to say here, is actually still just who we are in Christ. Yeah, and that's, that's entirely, so we can, dist- we can kind of distinguish between these kind of images of virtue, which are good. I mean, I remember R.C. Sproul saying we should study logic and all that kind of stuff, which is philosophy, right? It's just, yeah. it's studying how real things work in terms of immaterial processes, right? But logic is is a gift of God, but it doesn't mean that it is the thing that will save you, <laughs> will save you is, is Christ. There's are distinguishable things that are both important in their right ordering. Right, yeah. Um, I think the last thing we wanted to talk about was... Uh, I, I guess works a super irrigation, but also the, uh, the idea of sounder schoolman like and on um, page 778, uh, this is, uh, section 11, chapter 14, yep. Calvin. Well, one thing I think is useful is Calvin. It, there's a lot of continuity. I mean, if you, if you live in 1516, there was you, the idea of the Roman Catholic church is, is nonsense. There's no Roman Catholic. There's a Catholic church yep. and the group of people within that, within the Catholic church who reformed themselves by the Bible are who we call the Reformed Church, <laughs> meaning they were always Catholic and continued to be, but reformed themselves. And eventually you have things that make it more distinct because of wars and all that. But nonetheless, it's important to realize there is some continuity and yet very important discontinuity. There, there's a reason why the Reformation happened. So I think he kind of brings us out here on page um, seven. Well, do you want to talk about works of super irrigation first, then this part, or should we just go here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is funny. I, I mean, I love the I love how he talks about the Sounder Schoolman, and then there the appeal is actually to, to Thomas Aquinas. Um, and then he's going to kind of hammer away at Scotus uh, right after that. Of course, Scotus. Um, yeah, and then you've got some Bonaventure in there. I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting. And then even the way he's framing the whole thing, it's very scholastic, you know. Um, but yeah, he's going to talk about these the 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 kind of traditional notion of the works of super irrigation. So you have works of duty, the things that you're supposed to do. And then you have works of super irrigation. Those are the ones that you go beyond your duty. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of, the way to kind of understand that today is like, you know, when a Christian's like, Hey, I prayed today as though that's some great thing. You're like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. That's your duty, <laughs> you know, as a Christian, there are things you can do that are kind of like beyond that. And in, and in the medieval Catholic thought, and even in Thomas Aquinas and the Summa, you know, the idea is that like those works are going to kind of help you, can speak crassly kind of curry favor to be accepted by god and one would think that calvin would as, as you're saying continuity discontinuity you might might stress the con- discontinuity and think that calvin's just going to ditch works of super irrigation altogether he's saying no there are works of super irrigation and uh, i think if he i think if i recall he makes an appeal if it's uh if i'm right here to uh, in luke uh i can't find it but anyway, he's he's going to. Um, I'm on the wrong page, right? Well, page 782. He says we agree that there are works of super irrigation. Yeah. And he uses yeah, there he's talking about the unworthy servant. Uh, we've done no more than we ought to have done. Luke 17. Then oh, you're right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's on 781. And so he um, uh, he's going to admit that there is such a thing as works to go beyond your duty. But he says now the difference is 
that doesn't gain us any kind of merit that's going to get us acceptance before God. So you can affirm or not the works of subrogation, but no matter what, you cannot say that these things are going to actually get you a kind of status. Even after he says, like, we agree with them that at a certain point, like, yes, we agree with kind of like them on justification and the starting point of it. But then they're going to say, oh, but then your works still will ground your acceptance. Like, no, 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 no. Whatever those works are, your acceptance is still all the stuff we're saying, partaking in Christ, the imputation and all that sort of stuff. That's where your acceptance is, even as a Christian. Yeah, and that's incredibly helpful. I, I, I just need to quickly clarify. I said one thing that it was, I think, inaccurate earlier. I said that when you're a Christian, and I was assuming Kelvin, that you can do righteous works. But he actually says the opposite on page 777 in the last sentence of section 9. He says, we have not a single work going forth from the saints that if it be judged in itself deserves not the shame as it's, deserves not shame as its just reward. Meaning it's all Christ's work. So I... Yeah. I just wanted to correct myself. Then let's come back here. Um, uh, so he does make this point that we agree on page 778 with the Sounders Schoolman yeah. on the beginning of justification. But then was, as we talked about earlier, the problem is then they add this idea of renewal in justification. So in today's speak, we would say they united sanctification and justification into the same thing. I know that it's yeah. different in this time period, but what I'm trying to do is clarify yeah. He said justification is both that initial infusion and also this kind of habit of righteousness. Yeah. And together, those are the things that justify you. But Calvin has already established that on the page prior that our even saints don't have works that will justify yeah. in of themselves. But really, it's only Calvin's kind of impute, or sorry, Calvin's Christ imputation of righteousness. That you really are a Calvinist, aren't you? <laughs> really a Calvinist. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure Kelvin will want to nuance this and in various ways in his commentaries and all that, but it is useful to notice that. And then you said he, he does have the scholastic thing, which I love. He says uh, in the middle of 778-ish, but on the contrary, which is kind of the said contra, but contra uh, yeah. on the other side, which is a very scholastic methodology. And even on the next page, talking about works of superirrigation, he has this, I reply. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's very, it's very scholastic. Yeah. Either he just I, I, I think I'll, I almost get a sense that he's writing this bit because he's kind of like, he's got the, the sounder schoolman and then he's got this kind of agreement with Aquinas, but then he's like, eh, but now we're going to tweak this a little bit here significantly. Yeah. And then he's like, and said contra, you know, I, I on the contrary. And I reply, you don't see like a twinkle in his eyes. He's kind of like, you know, writing this one out here. And then yeah. you know, he levels against uh, Scotus too. But well, I, I think it's just funny. You can tell that he's at least read some of it. He quotes Dun Scotus, which is interesting, um, because everyone uh, accuses Calvin of being a, I guess that's Occam or a, a nominalist, but he's not agreeing with them here anyway. Um, he's, like, he's trying to escape, but there ain't an escape hatch in Scotus on this one. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't mean the judge. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he says, like, what is the accepting grace? He says, I reply that this is on the on uh, this is the first the, the second paragraph for number twelve on seven seventy nine. I reply that accepting grace, as they call it, is nothing else than his free goodness with which the Father embraces us in Christ when he clothes us with the innocence of Christ and accepts it as ours, that by the benefit of it, he may hold us as holy, pure, and innocent. So is does God accept us on, the, on, our, on our merits? Yeah, insofar as Christ's merits are now our merits, <laughs> right? Yeah, and the next uh, sentence is, clarifies. Yeah, Christ's righteousness, which as it alone is perfect, 
can alone alone can bear the sight of God, must appear in court on our behalf and stand surety in judgment. But yeah, our- so this is the heavenly tribunal that he's been talking about that we need to be concerned about. And we're going to stand there and we don't stand there pleading our own natural righteousness, this righteousness that is ours, but it comes to us entirely as a gift of Christ because we're in them. You know, it's the next two sentences I just find so interesting too. Furnished with this righteousness, we obtain continual forgiveness of sins and faith. Yeah. Which is kind of like- There's your super irrigation, (laughs) the ongoingness of things, you know? Then he says, covered with this purity, the sordidness and and uncleanness of our imperfections are not ascribed to us, but are hidden as if buried, that they may not come into God's judgment until the hour arrives when the old man slain and clearly destroyed in us, the divine goodness will receive us into blessed peace with the new Adam. So, so even if you, if you, I mean, this is a comforting thing. If you sin, that is in a sense hidden and we're continually forgiven because we have this union with Christ by the spirit that is a continual source of life. So it's not, sometimes I think salvation is like this one time thing that happened in the past and you're just like, okay, I'm in a state, but this is very vital. You are always connected to Christ, always have the spirit in us working in and through us. We always have a high priest who is the mediator before us, before the father and so on. Um, it's interesting too, like thinking just back again to like the kind of like scholasticism and, and whatever. Uh, on 783, 784, it actually gets into the four causes of Aristotle, oh, yeah. um, uh, which is kind of interesting, right? In terms of like how works actually uh, don't serve as any kind of like ground or cause of our holiness, right? So the, he breaks down the Christian's holiness in terms of like, uh, the four causes. Um, he says here, where are we? Uh, he says the efficient cause uh, of obtaining of eternal life is the mercy of the Father. The material cause is Christ and his obedience. Uh, the formal is faith. The final cause uh, is, uh, he says, it consists both in the proof of divine justice and in the praise of God's goodness. And in the same place, Paul expressly mentions three others. And he goes on and he's quoting from Romans. And so he's using the language of, of the four causes, but he's grounding the whole thing in God, you know, and God everywhere. He's the final cause. He's the efficient, you know, all that kind of works out. And then he concludes that, that section there, number 17, kind of near the bottom of 784. But scripture cries out against this also simply affirming that Christ is for us both righteousness and life. And that this benefit of righteousness is possessed by the classic, you know, walk toward the Reformation by faith alone. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a right orientation of the idea of like the causality behind our holiness, which is actually God. And it's only appropriated to us by the fact that we put our faith in it alone, in Christ alone. Yeah, that's incredibly helpful. And in that, that faith is the formal or instrumental cause by which we receive Christ, who's the material cause. He's the, the thing itself. Yeah. Um, Wow, that's incredibly helpful. So I think we could probably land the plane on this today. It's a good place to end with cast ourselves entirely into God and Christ by faith alone, which is that, you know, one of the famous phrases, the Reformation. I think when we come back next time, we'll be covering uh, uh, chapters 15 to 17. Is that right? Where do we end? Yeah. Yeah. Chapter 15. On this one, man. And uh, maybe even up to, up to 19 to kind of catch up, uh, depending on when we release this one, which will be today or tomorrow. So thanks, Ian. I appreciate it. That was fun to get into Kelvin again, and we'll see you next time.